Chapter Thirteen of the Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: Suburbanism. Of old, that is to say, twenty years ago, the great majority of the English people suffered from a mental and general disability which was termed provincialism if you hailed from manchester or liverpool or birmingham or edinburgh or glasgow the kind gentleman in london who sized people up and put them in their places assured you that you were a provincial and that you would have to rub shoulders a great deal with the world by which they meant london before you could rightly consider yourself qualified to exist against the epithet provincial however not a few persons rebelled when it was applied flatly to themselves most men of feeling felt hurt when you called them provincial in the world of letters and journalism to call a man provincial was the last and unkindest cut of all and it usually settled him just to say that he has no sense of humour settles him to-day then up rose thomas carlyle and robert buchanan and a few lesser lights who said you call us provincials provincials we undoubtedly are and we glory in the character this rather baffled not to say amazed the lily-fingered london assessors and gradually the term provincial as a term of opprobrium passed out of use it is admitted now on all hands that the provincial is a very useful kind of fellow and when the metropolis feels itself running short of talent and energy the provincial is invariably invited to look in latterly however the londoner and the dweller in english provincial cities have begun to exhibit a distinctly modern disorder which may be called for want of a better term suburbanism in london which may be taken as the type of all english cities suburbanism is pretty well rampant it has its origin in what the americans would call location a man's daily work lies say in the city or in the central quarters of london for various reasons such as for example as considerations of health expenditure and custom it is practically impossible for him to live near his work he must live somewhere so he goes to balham or tooting or clapham or bronsbury or highgate or willesden or finchley or couch end or hampstead or some other suburban retreat london is ringed round with these residential quarters these little towns outside the walls a visitor to any one of them is at once struck with its striking and painful similarity to all the others there is a railway station belonging to one of the metropolitan lines there is a high street fronted with lofty and rather gaudy shops there is a reasonable sprinkling of churches and chapels there is a brand-new red-brick theatre and the rest is row on row and row on row of villa residences each with its dreary palisading and attenuated grass-plot in front and its curious annex of kitchen or scullery behind miles and miles of these villas exist in every metropolitan suburb worthy the name and though the rents and sizes of them may vary they are all built to one architectural formula and all pinchbeck ostentatious and unlovely no person of judgment nobody possessed of a ray of the philosophic spirit can gaze upon them without concluding at once that the english do not know how to live take a street of these villas big or little and what do you find you note first that nearly every house be it occupied by clerk jew financier or professional man has got a highfalutin name of its own 
the county council or local authority has already bestowed upon it a number but this is not enough for your suburbanist who must needs appropriate for his house a name which will look swagger on his letter-box hence number two sandringham road tooting is not number two sandringham road tooting at all but the laurels if you please number four not to be outdone is holmwood number six is hazeldean number eight the pines number ten sutherland house and so forth then again if you walk down a street and keep your eye on the front windows of this thoroughfare of mansions you will note that every one of those windows has cheap lace curtains to it and that immediately behind the centre of the window there is a little table upon which loving hands have placed a green high art vase containing a plant of sorts and right back in the dimness of the parlour there is a sideboard with a high mirrored back if you made acquaintance with half a dozen of the occupiers of these houses and were invited into the half dozen front rooms you would find in each in addition to the sideboard before mentioned a piano of questionable manufacture a brass music-stool with a red velvet cushion an overmantel with mirrored panels a saddle-bag suite consisting of ladies and gents and six ordinary chairs and a couch a centre-table with a velvet pile-cloth upon it a bamboo bookcase containing a corelli and a hall crane or so together with some sixpenny dickenses picked up at draper's bargain sales nuttall's dictionary mrs beaton's house-book a bible a prayer-book some hymn-books a work-basket full of socks waiting to be darned and a little pile of music chiefly pirated at night when spriggs comes home to the laurels he has an apology for late dinner gets into his slippers and retires with mrs spriggs and perhaps his elder daughter into that parlour there he reads a halfpenny newspaper till there is nothing left in it to read then he talks to mrs spriggs about that beast so-and-so his employer and mrs spriggs tells him not to grumble so much and asks the elder daughter why she doesn't play a tune to liven us up a bit yes says spriggs what is the good of having a piano and me buying you music every saturday if you never play whereupon the elder daughter rattles through dolly gray the honeysuckle and the bee and everybody's loved by some one and spriggs beats time with his foot till he grows weary and thinks we had better have supper and get off to bed this kind of thing is going on right down both sides of sandringham road at homewood at hazeldean at the pines and at sutherland house as well as at the laurels every weekday evening between the hours of eight and midnight in point of fact it is going on all over tooting it is the suburban notion of an happy evening at home and hallowed as it is by wont and custom everybody in tooting takes it to be the best that life can offer after business hours perhaps it is just before supper or haply a little afterwards however spriggs says that he believes he will take a little stroll round the houses he puts on a straw hat in summer and a tweed cap in winter and proceeds gravely down the sandringham road until he reaches a break in the long array of villas and is aware of a rather flaring public-house into the saloon bar of this hostelry he walks staidly nods to the company and asks the barmaid for a drop of the usual let me see says that sweet lady johnny walker isn't it 
well you know it is says spriggs as he hands over threepence with the glass of whisky in his hand he retires to the nearest red plush settee and looks listlessly at the illustrated papers on the little table in front of him drinks somewhat slowly smokes a pipe exchanges a word about the weather with the landlord of the establishment says there's time for another before closing time has another and at twelve thirty trots off home the seven or eight other men in the saloon bar being respectively the occupiers of holmwood hazeldean the pines sutherland houses etc have done almost exactly as spriggs has done in the way of drinks and nods and illustrated papers and having a final at twenty minutes past twelve but during the whole evening they have not exchanged a rational word with one another they have nothing to talk about therefore they have not talked they are neighbors and they know it but they all hold themselves to be so much superior to one another that they have scorned to speak to each other except in the most cursory and casual way next morning at a few minutes to nine o'clock they will all be scooting anxiously along the sandringham road with set faces damp brows and a fear in their hearts that they are going to miss their train they will travel in packed carriages half of them standing up while the other half growls to ludgate hill or moorgate street as the case may be and then rush off again to their respective offices in fear and trembling this time lest they should be three minutes late and the governor might notice it this is the life of the males in the sandringham road year in and year out through living in the same houses in the midst of the same furniture listening to the same pianos drinking at the same public houses going to business in the same trains they become as like one another as peas they are all anxious all dull all short of sleep all short of money in brief they have become suburbanized the monotony and snobbery and listlessness of their home life are reflected in their conduct of the working day's affairs there is not a man amongst them who has a soul above his job each of them sticks at business not because he loves it or likes it but simply because he knows that if he were discovered in a remissness he would get what he calls the sack each of them lunches oh this english lunch at the bar of a public-house on a glass of bitter beer and a penny welsh rarebit each of them feels a bit chippy and not a little sleepy of an afternoon and each of them races for his train in the evening chock-full of worry and bad temper you must live in the suburbs if you are to live in london at all and there is no escape from it the lines of the female suburbians are cast in more or less pleasant places they do not need to go to town every day there are shops galore filled with just the goods they want round the corner and there is always the next female on both sides to gossip with for unlike the male suburbian the female suburbian will talk to her neighbours her conversation is of babes and butcher's meat and the peace at the theatre and the bargains at the stores in the high road and him he or him means the good lady's husband she never by any chance refers to him either by his christian name or his surname or as my husband it is always he said to me this morning or as i was saying to him before he went to business which i take it is a peculiarly english habit the female suburbian goes out to tea sometimes usually at the house of some suburban relative 
her dress is a curious blend of ostentation and economy she will be in the fashion and being an englishwoman expense is no object providing she can get the money she has no notion of thrift she is perennially in arrears with the milk and the insurance man and when money gets very tight indeed she lectures her husband on his wicked inability to make more than he is getting the whole life whether for male or female is dreary harried unrelieved and destructive of everything that tends to make life affable and tolerable in view of the obvious evils suburbanism has brought about in the english metropolis it might have been expected that the english provincial cities would have done their best to avoid similar troubles in their own areas so far from this being the case however the craze for suburbanism is making itself apparent wherever one turns city and borough councils lead the way by erecting at the public expense artisans and clerks dwellings well out of the town they hold that fresh air the open country and cheap railway fares are all that is wanted to make the english citizen's life a perennial joy to him yet the dwellings they erect are of the shoddiest and least homelike kind the fresh air which is to do the worker and the children so much good is a doubtful quantity and the cheap railway fares are bragged about without regard to the time taken up in travelling and the hurry and anxiety to catch trains suburbanism as a stereotyped and soul-deadening institution is of purely english origin in no other country in the world do convention and what other people will say so rule the lives of men as they do in england suburban is in many ways the most obvious of the many products of english convention it is at once an indication of brainlessness want of intelligence and incipient decay apparently there is to be no limit to it outside london new suburbs spring up almost weekly but their newness brings no changes in its strain each new suburb is mapped out and built exactly on the lines of the old ones each is destined for the reception of exactly the same kind of stupid people each will be the living ground of generations of people still more stupid End of chapter thirteen chapter fourteen the man about town the english man about town and i am not acquainted with any other sort is to put it mildly a devil of a fellow who he may be how he gets a living whether he gets a living how and why he became a man about town and whether after all he is really a man about town are matters which are wrapped in mystery everybody knows him yet nobody knows much about him you meet him everywhere yet nobody can tell you how he gets there his acquaintance is astonishing ranging from dustmen to dukes as it were he cuts nobody though he is intimate with nobody he is familiar with his world and all that it expects of him and he plays the game skilfully correctly and as gentlemen should there are droves of him in london probably no other city in the world could with comfort accommodate so many of him he lives in the sun he is the joy and pride of the restaurateurs and the cafe keepers hearts no billiard-room is complete without him he shines at bars of onyx music halls and theatres could not get on without him and on the whole it is his useful and pleasing function to keep the west end of london and its offshoots going 
what the west end of london means to the man about town is a large question it means clubs in the morning with a tailor a hatter a bookmaker or two thrown in it means expensive lunches lazy somnolent afternoon big dinners hard drinking cards night clubs and a day that ends at three o'clock in the morning nobody but an englishman could stand the racket nobody but an englishman could find satisfaction in so doing the man about town is the last expression of an unhealthy plutocracy he is the child of means the son of his father the pampered darling of his mother and he has never understood that life was anything more than a frivolous holiday whether he has money or happens to have spent it all he sets the standard of expenditure for everybody who would be considered in the movement he also sets the fashion in hats coats trousers fancy waistcoats shoes walking sticks and scarf pins for englishmen at large it never occurs to him that he does this but he does it he it is who is the prime supporter and patron of the manly english sports horse racing glove fighting coaching moting polo shooting fishing yachting and so forth in these exercises he finds great delight when he is not busy dining and whining and painting the town red sport is the mainstay of his existence he is usually young till he reaches the age of thirty when he begins to decline rapidly but the older he gets the younger he gets although he may lose his hair and be compelled to have resort to false teeth and elastic stockings his spirits are invariably of the cheerfulest his laugh is boisterous his interest in life acute and he continues to be passionately fond of food and drink it is not till his locks become hoar his purse well-nigh empty and the number of his years well over threescore and ten that he begins to droop englishmen will point him out to you in cafes and say with hushed voices you see that man the one with the frowsy beard and his hat a-tilt well he spent a hundred and fifty thousand twice a hundred and fifty thousand my boy what did he do with it oh well what do people do with money there's a man sir that's seen life used to have a house in berkeley square has owned three derby winners built the thingamabob theatre for miss jumping about knows everybody has hobnobbed with the king when he was prince of wales used to be hand in glove with the duke of blank and that crowd and now damn he hasn't a penny piece all this with the air of a person who is showing you something worth seeing it is the english fatuity first of all to admire the man who is possessed of wealth secondly to admire a man who is throwing his money away and thirdly to look with respectful awe upon the man who has thrown it away it warms the english heart and fires the english imagination to see the son of a recently deceased provision dealer playing the prince at the best hotels plunging at ascot and monte carlo buying up the stalls at the frivolity at the behest of lotty Flutterfest, and generally flinging to the winds the hard-earned and to a great extent ill-gotten estate of his late lamented parent by all the best people by all the best english people that is to say such a youth is received and made welcome if not exactly taken to the bosom englishmen ask him to dinner simply because he has money they are aware that his courses will not bear examination that his tastes are gross that his intellect is none of the brightest he has nothing to say for himself he is neither entertaining nor amusing nor instructive 
the englishman has no ulterior motive upon him he does not hope to get him into this or that financial swim neither does he desire to marry his daughter to him he simply feels that it is well to be friendly with money and the man about town even a bankrupt or broke man about town is better to the englishman than none at all with such a person he will foregather and be pleasant in the sight of all men old so-and-so he says is a dear old sort he is broke of course and sometimes he rather worries one for sovereigns but i have never deserted a pal in adversity in my life and i'm not going to begin with old so-and-so thus your good snob englishman would lead you to believe that he was on terms of intimacy and affection with old so-and-so in old so-and-so's palmy money-squandering days whereas in point of fact he never clapped eyes on the man till he had spent his last farthing it is all very english and to a mere scot a trifle astonishing the scot if i know him at all takes no joys of spendthrifts however prettily dressed and least of all can he be brought to court the society of a man who has reduced himself to beggary by extravagance and riot the bare gift of prodigality and the bare reputation of having been wealthy are nothing to the scot if he wants men to admire he can find men of solider quality the englishman on the other hand has no great love for either solidity or worth the first makes him envious the second bores him though he may himself be a person of judgment and sober life he likes to have about him men who are going or who have gone the whole hog and who pursue their pleasures without restraint remorse or fear hence the man about town will always figure interestingly in english society there is romance about him he has been foolish and perhaps even wicked but he belongs to the select coterie of people who when all is said make the gay world go round End of chapter 14